This is TC Palmcast. Top Treasure Coast headlines and more from TC Palm, part of the USA Today Network. Good morning and welcome to TC Palmcast. It is Wednesday, March 20th. I am producer Daisha Johnson in the studio today. I'm giving Hannah Schwab a break. And I have asked our veteran legal affairs reporter, Melissa Holzman, to join me this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Daisha. So we have some updates in the spa sex trafficking case. A woman from a Hope Sound Spa, one of the workers, she was in court earlier this week and she pleaded to her charges. So Melissa, I know you've been involved in a lot of the different facets of, of you know, there's so many moving pieces on what's going on with these cases. So what do you got for us? Yes. In fact, we do have a story that's up now that Will Greenlee and Mary Helen Moore and myself, the three of us worked on it because again, like you said, there are very many moving parts happening with uh, all of these uh, situations. And um, in Monday morning, there was a woman who was employed at the Bridge Day Spa in Hope Sound, and she opted to enter a plea of no contest to a charge. And in exchange, the state's attorney's office dropped some other charges against her. Now, now, the way that she, her lawyer described her, her name is Yang Wang. She's uh, in her early 40s, and she's a, a citizen of China. Her lawyer said that she was kind of a very minor player in all of this. It looks like she was involved um, and accused of performing sex acts at the spa, but she wasn't one of the so-called ringleaders, if you will, or one of the managers. Right. She was facing, um, let's see, uh, money laundering, racketeering, engaging in prostitution, and a couple other charges. But what she did is uh, she she pleaded to a reduced count of deriving proceeds from prostitution. The state dropped the rest of those charges and they put her sentencing off a little while. So and that really she did have to use an interpreter during this. Oh, yeah. In fact, when Will Greenlee was in court, he talked about it, that it took quite a long time compared to a normal change of plea sentencing hearing because there was a Mandarin interpreter that was required. It looks like she didn't speak any English at all. So that kind of slowed things down quite a bit. Um, but her lawyer insisted after court that she really wasn't involved with the management of any of this. You know, she was really kind of a small time employee of this, you know. And would we consider her a victim? them. Well, at, Will asked that question straight to the defense lawyer in her case, Ed Mosher, and he said that there didn't seem to be any evidence to show that she was a victim of human trafficking. In fact, what I'm hearing from prosecutors in the Martin County cases is it doesn't look like they're going to be presenting any evidence when these cases all go to trial that there was human trafficking going on here. It, it looks more like what's shaping up is a prostitution ring that was happening where uh, employees were being brought in and out, you know, of different locations. And it kind of looks like they're going to peg one woman as being kind of the ringleader of all of this. But it's still, it's very early. You know, in fact, the prosecution office, uh, the state's attorney here in the 19th Circuit on the Treasure Coast is uh, splitting these cases up. They've got misdemeanor prosecutors that are going to be taking care of the clients of the spas who are charged with soliciting prostitution. And they've got another team of prosecutors that are going after the so-called madams or the managers of the spas and all of the women that may end up being charged. And at the same time, one of the <clears throat> more well-known criminal defense lawyers in town, Richard Kibbe, he took a tact. Um, he's been hired by, he won't tell me exactly how many clients he has. He says it's somewhere between a dozen and 20. But it 
looks like a combination of people who were spa clients charged with soliciting for prostitution have hired him to represent him. But he's got other clients who were maybe clients of the spa. They went there for a massage or something, and they have not been charged with a crime, but they have hired him to basically protect their reputation. So what he did is he filed lawsuits in two different fronts. Now, we haven't talked about this, but, you know, Palm Beach County is involved in this, too, because of a spa right. in Jupiter, which has gotten a lot of notoriety because that was the one that Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots, had gone to, the Orchids of Asia Day Spa. And that was investigated by the Jupiter Police Department and the 15th Circuit uh, State Attorney's Office, Dave Ehrenberg. So what Richard Kibbe did on the exact same day is he filed what's called a declaratory action against the Martin County Sheriff's Office and our state attorney's office up here in the 19th circuit and the exact same lawsuit against Palm Beach uh, in Palm Beach County against Jupiter Police Department and the state attorney's office down there. In a nutshell, what he wants is a judge to give him a ruling that says none of the evidence in this case, particularly the video that was recorded surreptitiously by investigators that were looking to make a case here and the names of any clients of the spas who have not been arrested. He wants those kept under wraps. He doesn't want that information released. Is there any reason <clears throat> that the names of the people who were going to the spas but not necessarily paying for sex, would there be any reason why their names would be released? Well, it, it, uh, from what I've heard from prosecutors, and you know, um, they say a lot that they want. They're not willing to say on the record, but it looks like certain of the investigative reports that were generated because of the investigation, they do potentially have the names of clients that had entered the building, you know, and they suspected were there maybe for illicit behavior, maybe not. But their names may end up in a report. But what they've released though is only the arrest reports and affidavits related to the people that have actually been arrested. And we're up to about 300 if you include Indian River County in this as well. Right. And but I know that we've been keeping a spreadsheet of all of these names. Oh, we've got a database on TC Palm. In fact, uh, if you put in, if you go to the database and you put in a name, then you can find out, you know, just the basic, the charges against them, the city they're from, what their age is, you know, and, and separately uh, coming soon is going to be myself and Miranda Moore, our investigative reporter. We're taking a deeper dive into looking at this entire class of offenders who visited these spas and are now facing charges. You know, what do we know about the public records available. Who are these people? You know, um, uh, what kind of background do they have? Uh, what can we say about these men that were visiting these places? So right. we're kind of putting that together for down the road. And so far, no videos have been released. No. In fact, I would be absolutely shocked if any of the videos that were taken inside any of the massage rooms would ever be released. And there's a couple of reasons why. Florida Chapter 119, which oversees what's available in public records to be released to the media, they they do have uh, something in there that says if it's potentially a, a victim of uh, any kind of sex trafficking or something like that, that would not be released to the public. And uh, just the fact of because it's, I mean, potentially like triple X-rated uh, video, uh, we would never be able to put that on our website anyway. No, we wouldn't I, do I mean, that. I mean, you know, think about it. Um, however, uh, you know, the, I think that there might be a possibility down the road if there's video, say, of the front lobby of like um, the money transaction taking place, somebody putting out a credit card or, you know, coming in and going right. from the building that doesn't involve any kind of illicit behavior, you know, potentially that video, you know, they might be able to. It kind of really depends 
depends on how successful Richard Kibbe is with this declaratory lawsuits. Because right now in Martin County, uh, a judge that ha is overseeing this case, Judge Steve Levin, he threw out the lawsuit last week. And the reason he did that is because the day before the Martin County Sheriff's Office fi uh, announced all of these arrests in this case, you know, they had a big press conference at their uh, sheriff's office, uh, Attorney General Ashley Moody was down here, lots of law enforcement there. They didn't tell us that day, though. They had already gone to a county judge, Darren Steele, and asked him to sign an order that sealed all of the evidence in this case. And that order was in place at the time that the arrests were announced. And in fact, it was in place up until this past Friday. So Judge Levin, when he threw out Richard Kibbe's lawsuit, he kind of pointed to Judge Steele's order and says, hey, you already got what you need here. This this evidence is already under seal. It's not allowed to be released. So this lawsuit, it's, it's you know, it, it's moot is the legal term. You know, right. it's, it's a waste of time. But no such order ever existed in Palm Beach County. You know, the Jupiter PD didn't go to a judge asking for the same thing. So that lawsuit is still alive and well, and it's being litigated. And I expect that any day now, um, uh, the Jupiter Police Department and the state's attorney's office will probably file a motion to dismiss. That's kind of what they do first before they actually answer it. But in the meantime, back here in Martin County, just because the lawsuit has been dismissed, now the next thing that attorney Richard Kibbe is doing is he's filed paperwork asking Judge Levin to reconsider his ruling in this matter. It's called a motion for rehearing. He wants to get a chance to go in and kind of explain to Levin maybe why he got it wrong and um, to reconsider what he ruled here. And he's pointing to the fact that now that Judge Steele's order to seal this evidence has been dissolved, he needs to take extra steps to protect his clients because now he has a, a greater fear that some of this information, their names, or maybe some of the video right. would get out and he, you know, but um, it's going to be real interesting to see how that plays out. So again, there's just so many moving parts to this whole thing, you know, because as these prosecutions continue, more records will become available. Just the other day, the uh, Stewart uh, State Attorney's Office here in Martin County, they gave us a disc that had 416 pages of records related to just the spa clients that are being arrested. Wow. You know, and then the Jupiter Police Department last week sent out nine emails, each with just hundreds of pages attached to all of the arrests that have occurred down there. So frankly, we're still kind of coming through all that stuff. Yeah. And we have to dig through all of those documents, obviously. Oh, sure. So shout out, support your local newspaper. So, you know, we have to look through all these documents so we can tell you what's going on and explain what's, you know, going on in all these situations. Really quick, though, I am just curious if, let's say, Robert Kraft would his video authority say that there are videos of the two times that he was at the spa? Would those ever end up being played in a courtroom? Well, you know, I think that that's probably going to come down to a ruling by the judge or some judge, either in his criminal case or in this what's called a declaratory action. Because, uh, you know, I'm not an attorney, but I've been around him for a long time. And I think that it's very possible that the judge in Palm Beach County that is presiding over this action that Richard Kibbe filed, he may just say, look, you need to take this up in criminal court. I have nothing to do with this, you know, and the proper place to look at this is what are the rules of criminal? 
procedure. You know, what's allowed to be released as a public record as these cases are prosecuted? Because, you know, not everything becomes a public record just because the prosecution begins. But there's a, a thing that most defense lawyers file. It's called Notice of Intent to Participate in Discovery. And as soon as that paperwork is filed, that's always been our cue in the media. Like, aha, okay, whatever the state's attorney's office has that they plan on presenting as evidence, once it goes to the lawyer, the defense lawyer, then it becomes a public record. Okay. Now they can go through and redact certain things, you know, depending on what exemptions exist and um, under the law. For instance, no social security numbers, no bank account numbers, names of juveniles, you know, there's certain uh, parameters. And they may decide that any video having to, that was uh, recorded inside a spa parlor that shows an explicit sex act, a judge very well may say, okay, that's only allowed to be seen by the prosecutors, the defense lawyers, and the judge or potentially a jury down the road. You know, so we they may split the baby, so to speak, where we might get video of saying, showing, you know, pointing to a parking lot or um, uh, people that are in a lobby, for example. Right. It depends, you know, and, and since nobody's seen this video, we don't know exactly what they have. But yeah. in media reports, you know, Jupiter Police Department has said that they have Robert Kraft on video, both in a massage room, you know, receiving sex acts, Allegedly, and then in the uh, lobby area, you know, giving uh, handing over cash. Right. So it, that still is a big question of what we're going to eventually get. Okay, switching gears a little bit here. Ironically, this next subject we're going to talk about also involves Richard Gibby. <laughs> yeah, he's a man of the hour around here on the Treasure Coast for sure. So last week, you and I sat in a, a resentencing hearing, a final decision after a resentencing hearing. This story is a little bit more complicated. Melissa, I'm going to let you dig into that. But just to remind everybody, we do have a bigger crime podcast called Uncertain Terms that Melissa and I worked on for more than a year. It debuted in the month of January. You can still access all of those episodes. And so uh, Victor Brancaccio is the, the man of the hour. And we he was supposed to be on the first season of Certain Terms, but then some law changes happened. And, and so, Melissa, let's give an update. Yeah, Victor Brancaccio, you were in court with me that day. Uh, he is now 42 years old. In fact, he just had a birthday, February 27th. And uh, at age 16, back in 1993, let's see, it was June 11th, 1993, he murdered an elderly neighbor woman. Her name was Molly Mae Frazier. And, um, you know, Victor had a lot of problems when he was a teenager. He was... Uh, um, taking Zoloft. He was uh, getting therapy for some mental health issues. I uh, had kind of low IQ. I had trouble in school. You know, so his parents already kind of had a handful with him there. And unfortunately, um, he burst into a rage when he came across this lady. Um, he he had a, a, a Walkman or a, maybe a boombox, and he was listening to some rap music. It had very vulgar lyrics. He was singing them out loud as he was walking around the neighborhood. And Molly Mae Frazier had been out on an evening walk. They encountered each other. Other, and she was like, hey, quit saying all that vulgar stuff. And he got mad and he hit her. And one thing led to another. He ended up um, beating her, pulling her over a little berm that was near where they first encountered each other. And he killed her. Um, he came back later to try and hide her body. He sprayed her body with spray paint. And at one point he used some newspapers to try and set her body on fire. He told some people what he had done. They came and discovered the body, called the authorities. And uh, by 1995, Victor had been convicted uh, at trial of first-degree murder. Back in those days, the sentence was life with the possibility of parole after 25 years. 
Now that ended up becoming a major factor in his resentencing. You know, um, he actually underwent two trials. He won an appeal, first of all. He underwent a second trial. And by 1999, he was convicted all over again, got the exact same sentence, life with the possibility of parole up to 25 years. Fast forward uh, to uh, about a year and a half ago, he got permission to have a resentencing, which is a lot of what Uncertain Terms is all about. We talk about these changes in law that have been going on for about a decade, starting with the U.S. Supreme Court in 2012 that banned automatic mandatory life prison terms. And even though that was uh, geared towards uh, offenders, juvenile offenders who didn't have a possibility of parole, the Florida Supreme Court stepped in in 2016 and said, you know what? Not only are uh, juveniles serving life without parole entitled to this resentencing, but so are all of the offenders who are serving life with the possibility of parole. Basically saying that our parole system was so broken, it was so dysfunctional that these juveniles didn't really have what they called a meaningful opportunity to be released. So that allowed Victor to be eligible for this resentencing hearing. Exactly. So his family that has always stood by him for many, many years, you know, his parents, he's got lots of cousins, he's got a brother, uh, lots of relatives throughout the Treasure Coast. They hired Richard Kibbe and said, help us with this resentencing. They hired a bunch of experts. We, and you, if you remember, you and I were both in court last year for about a week and uh, Judge Gary Sweet, he took in a lot of evidence in the case. He listened to a lot of experts. Uh, Victor stood up at one point during the resentencing and turned around and and looked at Molly Mae Frazier's daughter, uh, Irma Miller, who was there with her husband, James. They came down from Virginia to attend it. And he apologized and said, you know, that there is no excuse for what he did, uh, that he's a much different person now. I mean, they really talked a lot about how much he's been rehabilitated uh, in the time that he spent in prison. So the hearing was over with, and it was up to Judge Sweet to then set this final date to impose the new sentence. And there was a little playing with the dates in the summertime of, you know, who was on vacation, who was allowed, you know, who was available to be there. And it ended up, it wasn't until August when he set the final resentencing. Well, in the meantime, which you and I talked about in uncertain terms, the Florida Supreme Court went and they said, you know, that ruling that we had in 2016 that said that all juvenile killers with parole had a chance to come back for these. Well, we take it back. We misinterpreted the federal laws in this case. We feel that we got it wrong. We're going to claw back that decision. So all of you offenders that are have a chance of parole, you're no longer eligible for a resentencing. You just have to rely on the parole system. And that's exactly what happened with Victor. So, of course, the state's attorney's office immediately filed paperwork to say, Judge Sweet, don't go through with the rest of this resentencing. So let's just pull because the plug it was right now. Potentially up to Judge Sweet to either go along with this ruling and say, sorry, Victor, you're no longer eligible, or because he had been so far down the pipeline through the resentencing hearing, Judge Sweet could have gone along with the original plan to do the resentencing. Right. And, you know, the reason that the, the Kibbe and uh, Victor's family were so uh, hopeful that Judge Sweet would continue to go through the resentencing is because he really had a, a real chance here at having his life term wiped out. He could have gotten a minimum of 40 years up to a life term all over again, you know. But, I mean, you and I were in court. It seems to me that... Uh, 
he his case looked like he had a pretty good opportunity of proving to Judge Sweet that he's really not one of the worst of the worst of juvenile offenders who really deserves this highest punishment, which is life. And he also had a really big support system behind him. His family was willing to take him in and give him a job and provide him the support that he needed if he were to get out of prison. Right. So fast forward in, in August when we all came to court, Judge Sweet, the only thing he did was he put the whole thing on ice. He says, okay, we've got this new ruling coming down from the Florida Supreme Court. It's not final yet, but it looks like it could have a huge impact on this case. So let's just put this, let's just delay the whole thing and kind of see how this plays out. Well, fast forward to last week on Thursday, Judge Sweet set the final sentencing and brought us all back in there again. And Richard Kibbe stood up and gave a a really heartfelt argument and trying to kind of Uh, find a legal path for uh, Sweet to continue with the resentencing. And in fact, he even quoted a couple of, uh, cited a couple of judges in North Florida that had gone through with the resentencing, thinking that, you know, they had already gone through with the resentencing hearing and all it was left was impose it. So let's just go ahead and finish this up. But uh, the state's attorney's office was very much opposed to that. They're like, look, this is not final, uh, his sentencing. So let's just stop the whole thing right now. And yet we knew that Victor was, he was convicted of kidnapping, to just back up for a second. And he got a life term for that. And that kidnapping comes in because he moved her body. Right. And not too far, just over the berm. Right. But But it was against her will to be considered kidnapping. Exactly. So he was convicted of that and given a life prison term. Right. And uh, he uh, he was entitled to a, a lesser sentence for that. So Judge Sweet really had two jobs to do when we were in court last week, determine what he was going to do with this murder uh, conviction and what to do with the kidnapping. And it seemed to me that Judge Sweet already absolutely knew what he was going to do the minute he walked into that courtroom. Well, sure. Obviously, he had, the, he had everything written up. But I was interested to hear how much Kibby was trying to explain that the timing of all this was very unfair and had Victor's original resentencing hearing been earlier or Sweet's final decision been earlier, he could have actually gone through the whole process before the law change happened again. Oh, sure. In fact, if you remember, he even made an insinuation that somehow the state's attorney's office knew that the Florida Supreme Court was getting ready to release this big ruling, and right. I think it was either June or July, that basically upended these earlier decisions that made Victor eligible in the first place and suggested that perhaps there was some nefarious plan going on that the state's attorney's office was tr- purpose trying to delay this in order to uh, make sure that Victor didn't get a resentencing. Uh, you know, honestly, there's not a shadow of proof that, you know, that the state's attorney's office had some special insight into when the Florida Supreme Court was going to issue this ruling. I, I don't think anybody really knows when they're going to do what they do up there right. in Tallahassee. But it was set in court. And um, I thought that Richard gave a pretty reasonable argument on trying too. to create a path for Sweet to continue with this resentencing. And you know, Victor's, his his family showed up again. He had uh, a lot of support. There was probably 10, 12 people in court, including his father, Eugene uh, Brancaccio. And uh, at the same time, Molly Mae Fraser's daughter, Irma, and her husband, James Miller, were back in court sitting there with the victim's advocate. They had a huge interest in, in finding out what happened here. So, uh, sweet. He, um, you're right. He, he seems like as soon as he let both sides kind of have their say, he immediately went into a 12 page ruling that he had already written up and had prepared. And in fact, Victor, he determined that he was no longer eligible for the resentencing for the murder count. So his life sentence would stand. 
and for yeah, the murder for the murder but then he had to address the kidnapping charge right which he reduced to uh, 40 years from yeah. the life term and you know he spent a lot of time in his ruling uh kind of going through different factors that these judges now must consider when it comes to uh resentencing a juvenile uh, their family background their age whether there was peer pressure uh their their mental state and that type of thing and sweet you know the, i think the family is really going to hang on to this victor's family you know because sweet did say that the expert testimony that was offered to him showed that at the time they uh they really didn't know about how much Zoloft could affect the mental state of a teenager that was under the influence of it. And that it, and Sweet ruled that it could have been a combination of, you know, him uh, being angry and being under the influence of Zoloft and some alcohol that he had drank. And that it did play a role in why he went into this, you know, uh, frenzied attack that day. And I think that his family were really grateful. Uh, in fact, that's what Richard Kibbe said afterwards, that uh, they finally heard it from a judge that this wasn't just because Victor was, you know, this evil, mean uh, right. person. There that, were other factors that contributed to this. Yeah, including the, the chemicals, you know, that it, it um, affected his ability to think straight. You know, and here is a little bit of what Judge Sweet said that day. At the time the defendant was taking Zoloft, an antidepressant medication. The effects of the medication on juveniles was not known at the time. However, it has since been shown to sometimes cause agitation and violent behavior. Expert testimony suggests that Zoloft may have been a factor in causing the defendant to commit this crime. Furthermore, expert testimony and psychological evaluations conducted on the defendant determined that he had low IQ and several behavioral disorders. These may have also played a, fa a factor in the defendant's actions, in particular when combined with Zoloft and alcohol. So, uh, to wrap this up now, uh, you know, Victor is going back to prison with a 40-year prison term on the kidnapping, and uh, Judge Sweet, uh, he gets a 25-year review on that sentence, you know, so once he hits 25 years, which, uh, he, he is about right now, cause he's been in prison since, uh, 95, his first conviction, um, he could petition the court to try and reduce that term again, but you know, unless something happens with the life prison term, which is being appealed, you know, that's the very first thing that Kibbe said after court is that they're going to appeal Sweet's ruling and hopefully that uh, a higher court will listen to him. But in the meantime, you know, before Victor came back, he did see, um, a parole board. And here in Florida, it's called the Florida Commission on Offender Review. And last June, they evaluated Victor for his possibility to get a release date. And unfortunately for Victor, though, uh, they determined last September that his release date should be March 13th, 2067. And he's 42 now. So if this stands and it doesn't change, then he's going to be a very elderly man and potentially, you know, I don't know if that's, you know, past what a normal life expectancy could be, especially behind bars. Right. And they also ruled that he's not allowed to come back for another rehearing for parole for seven years, you know, and that's the thing about parole, though. It's all about rehabilitation. It's all about, you know, what they're willing to uh, consider at the time. Seven years from now, they could wipe out the 2067 and, you know, go ahead and determine that it's ready for him to be released. So yeah. it's not over yet. Victor does have another chance legally to try and uh, get out of this life prison term. But, you know, um, 
to bring it full circle, when I talked to the prosecutors afterwards, uh, they made n no uh, apologies whatsoever. They still feel that Victor uh, should serve a life prison term with this, and so does Molly Mae Fraser's family. And they felt like th that they were um, gratified that Sweet kept that life prison term in place. But they also, you know, the quote that they gave, uh, that the prosecutor gave me is that, you know, they thought it was over in 95 in his first trial. Right. Then they thought it was over in 99 at the second trial. And now here we are in 2019 and it's still not over. And they know that because of the, the nature of our criminal justice system, it's really never going to be over. So as you can see, that is a pretty complex case, but it's just one more of these resentencing, juvenile resentencing hearings that we have been covering. So like we said, uncertain terms, we take a deep dive into four other cases, kind of like Victor's. These are all notorious cases along the treasure in the Space Coasts, including Brooks Belay up in Vero Beach. He was uh, 14 when he killed a four-year-old. So go check out Uncertain Terms. You can find that on any podcast platform. I will also link to that in show notes. Give us some feedback on that as well. And uh, thanks for being Absolutely. here, Melissa. Well, thank you very much. It was my pleasure. This is TC Palmcast. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm the executive producer, Daisha Johnson. This podcast is also produced by Hannah Schwab and Karen Schaefer. The editor is Tim Thorson. Interviews and reporting is done by TC Palm staff. You can email us at tcpalmcast at tcpalm.com.